1: from the Townsend Center for the Humanities at UC Berkeley. Welcome to Berkeley Book Chats. I'm Timothy Hampton, director of the Townsend Center for the Humanities. Berkeley Book Chats showcase a Berkeley faculty member engaged in a public conversation about a recently completed work. This popular series highlights the richness of Berkeley's academic community. Today's conversation features Joyce Carol Oates of the English Department discussing her book, Hazards of Time Travel, she is joined by Robert Haas, also of the English department.
2: So I think I begin. Do you want me to describe the oh, setup? that would be very,
1: Yes, that would be interesting.
2: Book, or would you like to?
1: No, that'd be, I'd like to hear what you have to say. <laughs> Anything Bob Haas has to say is just so interesting. So the book... Is a
2: I guess the genre would be dystopian novel. Yeah, it's in roughly three parts, maybe one fourth, two fourths, one fourth. In the first fourth, the setup: a young woman, seventeen, years, a young woman, seventeen years old, living in an authoritarian society. Um, in which, if you get in trouble for any, almost anything, you get vaporized. Um, uh, the main thing that they seem bit worried about people doing is thinking. Um, and um, this 17-year-old is her class valedictorian, though everyone has warned her not to stand out in any way. And before she's able to give her valedictory address, she's arrested and uh, given the highest punishment short of vaporizing, which is to be exiled. And she's exiled uh, at the end of part one to uh, someplace that resembles remarkably Madison, Wisconsin, and the University of Wisconsin in 1959. She's 17 years old, a freshman, um, Entering, uh, living with five roommates who are all seem to be farm kids from Wisconsin, (laughs) amazingly healthy people, and they have all kinds of extraordinary gadgets, such as she's never seen except in museums. Like one of her roommates has a typewriter. (laughs) So that begins the start of an experience of that might be partly be any kid any. 17-year-old girl traumatized by beginning the freshman year at a at a university, doubled by the fact that she's totally paranoid about whether or not she's being spied on and by whom, and brings from her previous experience the idea that you really should not stand out, but she can't stand not being interested in her classes, which raises difficulties for her. The middle of the book is... Um, partly a love story and partly an adventure story about her falling in love with an assistant professor named Ira Wolfman, <laughs> who is a teacher of Skinnerian psychology. Uh, and, uh, who, and he is the protege of a quite famous um, Skinnerian uh, behaviorist. Uh, that becomes part of the story, and uh, uh, it becomes a love story. And then there's a third part I'm not going to tell you.
1: <laughs> Thank you. That's wonderful. <laughs> I just wanted to mention a little. It wouldn't be Madison, Wisconsin, but it would be a more provincial branch of the university, basically a rural, a rural um, university. I'm so I'm so struck and, and really deeply moved when I, when I read about people in the past who have been involved very passionately in their experiments and projects and in all kinds of disciplines, you know, in, including po- poetry and, and fiction and science and philosophy and anthropology and psychology, which is sort of the focus of, of this novel. And they're working passionately on their with their, their experimentations, and they're all wrong. These people are going the wrong way, they're in the dead end. They're, they're pursuing the idea of that there's a steady-state universe, that, or they're pursuing the Skinnerian vision of human nature, which would be overthrown, basically, in 10 years, by 10 years later by Noam Chomsky. So being exiled intellectually is to be partly to be put back in this, this zone where no matter how hard you're working, you have the wrong idea. You have the wrong concept. You're working on the, Your experiment is brilliantly orchestrated, but it's the wrong idea. And you'll find out eventually, unless you die before then, that, you're, that you've failed. And yet I've always been so interested that people work just as hard at failing as some people do at success, or maybe even more. Doesn't that sort of interest you, Bob, just in...
2: Yes. Yeah. LAUGHTER
1: because in this novel, everybody is people are writing Robert Frost kind of poetry, you know, and they're rhyming, and they are very, very hostile and upset at the thought of Beatnik poetry. Yeah. They can't imagine that that's the way of the future. They're just passionately with these blinders on them.
2: Yeah, I appreciated that. There's a very well known poet in this book who everyone reveres. He has a great reputation, and she makes it clear that his work is mediocre and going to be totally forgotten which is
1: uh, except he's a star of his he's a star of his campus you know each little campus has this famous man or not likely a woman in 1959 but just really revered as just a great pioneer and, and, and genius and yet no history will see otherwise mm-hmm.
2: so do you want to talk about what led you to this book
1: Well, that vision is sort of like a vision of hell. (laughs) For people who are involved in research in like intellectual uh, projects or writing a novel or working on your poetry or your, your art in any way, you don't want to think that you're putting your whole life's work and energy into a project that actually is a mistake. To me, that was like a vision of hell and to be exiled to that place would be horrific. And Ira Wolfman is somebody from the future who's been exiled, so he knows very well the Skinnerian psychology. He has to, hear that line, he has to be uh, supportive of it. He knows that that's doomed. He has his own ideas. And it's sort of fun, and it's fun to go back in time in the novel like this and and sort of look into the future. The ideas, Stanley Milgram and some others would be experimenting with other visions of human consciousness. And... At that time, somebody might have looked ahead and gotten that a little wrong, too. You know everything is sort of waiting to happen. So when you go back in time and you 're looking forward to our present time, it 's like a, a blurred mirror of, of what exists and all the possible ways that one might have gone, you know the possible ways that, that we might have gone if we had gone to this university mm-hmm. instead of different university. Yeah. Now, I completely exclude university. Of California at Berkeley, from this this is this is like the great the pl- one of the great places and in, in contrast to these provincial hellish places
2: though there's some resemblance <laughs> between um,
1: so that's
2: that 's the setup of of and it's it's intellectually incredibly interesting and interesting in a bunch of other ways. the young woman has a microchip implanted in her head before she's teletransported, which makes it impossible for her to remember her parents. And, uh, but almost she can, as if through frosted glass, sometimes if she works very hard to do it. That part of the book is really, it's not about that. It's about aching loneliness.
1: Yes, Yes, and being unable to, to vividly recall why you're lonely. Mm -hmm. Well, I have another novel, The Man Without a Shadow, which is almost like a companion piece. That's very much about an amnesiac based upon the most famous amnesiac in the history of neuroscience. who's called H.M. So I wrote that novel a few years ago, and both novels deal with memory and neurological deficits and how our personalities are altered and how if we're living with people who have these deficits, we have to know how to, to speak to them and identify with
2: them. It, it struck me they were almost opposite characters. The guy in the other book has mm, no memory. He's like a goldfish in a bowl endlessly finding new things. So But he has no mean, short
1: he has no he has short-term term memory. No
2: short-term memory. Yeah,
1: but he has a long-term memory.
2: So and he's very charming. So in, in the, when the the that's another book in which to me the 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 setup is interesting, but then the relationship turns out to be even more interesting. It's One falls in love with this guy who, every time he meets her, says, Hi, what a pleasure, who are you?
1: (laughs) Women have that experience all the time. (laughs) Well, the the idea is partly in the beginning, he's, he's an experimental subject. Uh-huh. And the real H.M. was a goldmine for experimental psychology and, and neuroscience. So the, my novel was very much um, not exactly based on, but it was inspired by Suzanne Corkin's book, Permanent Present Tense, the remarkable history of the amnesiac Music. HM. So Suzanne Corkman was a professor at MIT. She worked for perhaps 30 years with this amnesia. And my husband, Charlie, who's a neuroscientist also, he had worked with HM a little bit, you know, because people were all coming in all the time. He's sort of like a a, a goldmine for experiments. And the experiments that I, I really charted in my novel Either are real experiments, or they're, they're quite possible experiments, as you do with somebody whose whose brain has been damaged. For instance, one of the interesting things is that our brains are so um, they're so complex. You may think that you have autonomy over your life or your 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 drives and wishes, but you don't actually. A lot of it is done autom- automatically, unconsciously. So a person who has brain damage in certain parts, in hippocampus, with short-term memory, if, for instance, you're being an experimental subject, you could be uh, told that you had just had your dinner. You know, you, you ate a huge plate of food, and you're not hungry, even though you haven't eaten for 72 hours or something. Or conversely... You were told that you are hungry, you're very hungry, even though you had a big plate, and then you are hungry, you know. Because you literally don't you literally don't remember and so your another part of your brain is sort of has autonomy over that. And the experimentations are quite fascinating because they throw a light onto our our personalities and so much of us, what we memory what we remember we've actually forgotten.
2: Another, so I'm thinking about the fact that one theory of allegory um, is that, like, like the fairy queen, is that this elaborate structure is created so that, um, keep you busy, so that the emotional part of the unconscious can do its own work underneath the the... So, underneath this structure, which also involves... Understanding the Intellectual History of Brain Research, which, because of the Skinnerian, is a 17-year-old girl with hero hero worship, loneliness, uh, almost compulsive love for a 30-year-old assistant professor, which is a campus subject that people might be sensitive to. And they had different rules in 1959.
1: Well, she perceives in him a fellow exile. Yes. And so she, he would be her only friend. Mm-hmm. And I love the name Ira Wolfman. <laughs> to me, that was very romantic. It's sort of a Jewish uh, tone to it. And uh, so I thought I was making up that name, as I always think I'm doing. Then uh, not long ago, I got an email from Ira Wolfman. <laughs> And, oh, he's writing to me from this zone, this, this other world. And he said, hello, I read your novel, and I'm very flattered by the image of me. And he didn't sound in himself quite as interesting as my character.
0: <laughs>
2: I didn't did do extensive research, but I have noticed that people are already writing about Freud's Wolfman and your Wolfman. Right?
1: Oh, yes, yes, it probably does have reference to, to Freud's famous <clears throat> Yeah, patience.
2: And it takes him into the woods. Yes, <coughs> at a certain okay. point in the book, this wolfman and takes her. Yes. her vulnerability to him is quite scary to me. Is it? Is that inside you? Even though he seems like a perfectly benign person.
1: Well, it might be interesting to explore that. I hadn't thought of it, Bob. Maybe there's a deep masochism. That's, that I haven't acknowledged How I was reading earlier today, a very sobering thought, I think for all of us, that public libraries subsidize literary and quality nonfiction titles with romance titles. Mm-hmm. So there are, there are large public libraries who, who would have to shut down the, the, their e-books. They couldn't bring out... <laughs> People like us, I guess one could say, so-called literary work, because they would need uh, the romance titles. In other words, there's something deeply and powerfully and irrevocably irresistible about romance. You know, so sometimes it has a little masochistic tinge to it because it's it kind of defers to the patriarchy that there's an authoritarian or a superior being, and then somebody worships that being. And somehow, though we are all egalitarian, I think there is still a remnant of that. And you sort of see that politically, that you can have a, a thoroughly debased and, and valueless figure of some patriarchal semblance who are nonetheless get a lot of reverence, you know, even though there's nothing there. It's sort of like the, a literally empty symbol, but you wave that flag or that, that symbol, and many people would defer to it. I don't think it's the same thing in my novel, but that's an interesting aspect of human nature, that we're hardwired. Mm-hmm. I think we feel that we're not. You know, we're sort of skeptical.
2: The, often it seems like dystopian novels are mostly about extrapolating scary political trends in the present into the future, 1984, and The Handmaid's Tale. It felt that this you were more found yourself more interested in exploring 1959
1: or the the sort of foundation for for the present.
2: One of the things that happens to the our heroine at the is that she's incredibly alarmed on her first time of going to bed in the same living quarters with her roommates, and they all put on these pink plastic electrodes in their hair before going to bed <laughs> torturing themselves and she's trying to figure out what they're doing.
1: Well, I sort of wanted to show the the foundations of manipulation of people and, and uh, sort of the mass market seduction that you see in advertising mm-hmm. going back to John, John Watson the so called father of American psychology and then B.F. Skinner and sort of seeing how that looks ahead to the surveillance state where the manipulations are so massive because when I wrote the novel I was working on in 2011, I had no idea at all, as, as none of us did, that we would have a different kind of political situation today. We have a sort of populist demagogue who in many ways is a throwback. I mean throwback is a weak word for what we have. A sort of primitive um, recadrescence of, of bigotry and racism and, and things that are sort of old... Old-fashioned, you know, in our in our history, but my novel was written before the the campaign of 2016, which is a vicious and wildly divisive campaign, which from which we never recover, probably will never recover. No, I was actually looking ahead toward a surveillance state, which doesn't have that populist personality demagogue, who is like a clown, a sadistic clown. was very vicious and, and funny in, a, in an ignorant way, playing to the populace, you know. In my, in my vision, it's more of a surveillance state where the government is actually impersonal, and you never see a personality. You don't see a face. Particularly, you don't see a face like Trump. You know, you don't, you don't see that, that particular face. It's more like it's just uh, all around us, we're in a, a mesh, a web of being surveilled, surveyed and recorded all the time. But when I was writing in 2011, 2012, I had really no idea of how it would be in, by the, when the book was published because it's much more elaborate now. Some little thing that we do, like we all have our cell phones, aren't the cell phones all recording us right now? I mean, I can foresee a time like next week when, our, <laughs> when all my thoughts... And my heartbeat and the fact that I may have some sort of uh, pathology somewhere in my body, it's all being beamed into my insurance policy, or you know like you're going to be everything about you that is going to be known that you don't know about and you haven't acquiesced to, and you haven't agreed to. All those things are recorded somewhere. So you show up one day at the airport to get a ticket, and you can't, you can't travel because you've had a bad thought about the president. It seems like it's funny, but it's happening already in China. Yeah. People, people's travel is going to be curtailed depending upon uh, the, like their, their social credit. And all this is done without anybody ever agreeing to it. You, know, they, you sort of wake up one day like Gregor Samsa, and you've turned into this, this symbol, this creature who has no autonomy anymore. So that's what I was looking... I was looking, examining that state rather than the state that we actually have. But there are things in common, and one of the things in common is a hatred and distrust of skepticism or free thought and, and any kind of scientific uh, endeavor, shutting down libraries, taking away budgets for national parks, taking away budgets for education, all those things that we see happening with the Trump administration. It fits very well in with this other kind of totalitarian state.
2: Maybe the audience would like to hear a little of what this sounds like.
1: Oh, I'm sure that, I'm sure that nobody really would. <laughs> but I, I'll start off with a wonderful quote from B.F. Skinner from a book that's now sort of derided and seems very old-fashioned, but it's actually a classic. Skinner's Science and Human Behavior. A self is simply a device for representing a functionally unified system of responses. Again. A self is simply a device for representing a functionally unified system of responses. So the self seen from the outside, from uh, the point of view of a government or uh, society wanting to control people, sees us as a function of, of responses. We'll be stimulated in certain ways and then we give a response. And that's how we're controlled. Skinner thought that was virtually everything. Then I'll just read one one little chapter. The chapters are quite short. This is only one page long. And this is about the very famous behaviorist experiment of John Watson's in 1920. And anyone who's taken psychology has seen these films. And you can see them, the videos, you can just Google them. It was a famous behaviorist experiment of 1920 conducted by John Watson. The 11-month-old infant, little Albert, had not been frightened of any animals until a gentle white rat was placed on his lap, and a sudden loud noise of two steel bars struck together behind his head several times in succession. So when you see the video, it's horrific, and yet it was very exciting science. The little baby is on a table, and it's being recorded, and it's being filmed. And John Watson stands behind him, and he has this pipe, and he has this hammer or something. So the little baby, first he sees actually, he sees a monkey, a frisky monkey. He's not afraid. He sees a dog. He's not afraid. He, you know, he wants to pet the dog. He sees... Um, a person in a Santa Claus mask, who's John Watson, actually. uh, They even burn a newspaper in front of him, and his big eyes, he sees the burning newspaper, but he's not afraid. He's just kind of curious. And then they're a very gentle white rat, and he leans over to pet the rat, and then John Watson starts hammering this incredibly loud, terrifying noise right behind his head. So the little baby starts crying and screaming, and he's in utter terror. He's convulsed. He starts to crawl off the table, and he's, he's grabbed and pulled back. So that's the first experiment. And soon then, little Albert began to cry at the very sight of the rat, as of a dog, even a fur coat, and to exhibit symptoms of terror preceding the clanging of the steel bars. So a month later, they have the second experiment, and the little baby's brought back. But this time, little Albert doesn't, have, he doesn't exhibit the qualities that he did the first time he's not looking around hope you know eagerly and, and batting his eye he's more like hunched and he's very he's he, he's already physically sort of changed and then the white rat is brought in again and he sees the white rat he starts screaming and he's terrified of the white rat he doesn't have to touch it or anything so eventually it's discovered that he's not only afraid of the white rat he's terrified of the dog and the monkey and the uh, person in the Santa Claus mask, which I'd be, I'd be terrified of that person because it was John Watson. <laughs> in the Santa Claus mask, he sort of leans close to this baby. So I did a little research in this, and you find out that um, John Watson never deconditioned him. And you find out that the mother was paid $1 for the use of her baby. This is one of the most... Expensive famous experiments in the history of psychology, it made John Watson's career. I mean, it's, it's classical Pavlovian conditioning. And you extract from that that you, you can condition anybody in any way if you control the environment around them. We're naturally afraid of surprises. We're nat- our brains are naturally going to recoil. So you want to associate that natural recoiling with something that you don't want the person to like. You, teach, you can teach fear and hatred of anybody and anything by, deep, by conditioning people. It's not always done so crudely with somebody standing behind you, but it's done in, in so many other ways. It's done through the media constantly. And the idea that people, masses of people, are so controlled in this conditioning really begins with this, these Pavlovian experiments. To me, that was really very fascinating. And you can, you can draw kind of an a elliptical line between that, 1920, and what we have in 2019. Depressing. <laughs> However, I do say, in the novel, I feel in my own life that people make their connections at a much, low, a much more intimate level. You know, there are ways of communicating, and maybe through art, and, and um, peripheral ways of being outside the web of conditioning.
2: That you began with the Skinnerian definition of the self made me think about your essay on the reasons people write novels.
1: Oh, what did I say? <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> you, you
2: said there were four, five reasons.
1: Uh-huh.
2: And one was commemoration.
1: Oh, that was which, art generally, all of which art.
2: Which had to do with that. setting family, kin. One was um, uh, bearing, witness bearing witness to a yeah. world. And the third was self-expression. In you said yeah. the self is basically adolescent.
1: Well, I think the and adolescence... And what characterized
2: adolescence with skepticism and rebellion?
1: I think the adolescent self is a self that we should all retain because it is, tends to be skeptical, perceiving the hypocrisy of adults, <laughs> you know, instead of standing and laughing. And also, uh, adolescents are very funny. We, we, have, we enjoy teaching because our students are like older adolescents and they're witty and funny. But other adults, you know, it's just sort of a different world. But commemoration—think of all of the great poetry, like Irish poetry—basically is all; it's almost all commemorative. Mm-hmm. And self-expression, I think, uh, is self-explanatory. Bearing witness is much a part of our, our literary endeavor and any kind of writing, journalism. I mean, we have a great journalist in, in this room. Mm-hmm with us, Mark Danner, bearing witness to parts of the world that we can't we have no access to, uh, sort of unearthing things that have been that have been hidden. And that's bearing witness. But I think the writer and the j- journalist and the poet and the artist sort of g- goes outside that that mesh of conditionings and by asking the right questions and not not being easily co-opted. And sometimes I think we make a choice not to be co-opted but to to go outside that
2: mesh. Mm-hmm. So it interested me that, I, I don't know how, what the seed of this book was, but the, the narrator was 17 years old and that it's about conditioning and rebellion. She's a, initially exiled in the first place because of skepticism. I'm asking
1: questions. Yeah. In a kind so, of naive way.
2: Can you talk about how the, how the, did the character occur to you first or the setting or the...
1: Well, I'm not sure what... I think writers don't always know why they write about certain things. But I'm very interested in the sort of philosophical principle, what is the identity? And I think in in adolescence, particularly late adolescence, we start asking questions, and we're no longer necessarily in the family or in the tribe, but suddenly asking questions. Like, where where did time begin? Where did the universe begin? You know, sort of looking past the heads of your parents and grandparents to, to some other uh, transcendental place and asking questions that the family can't answer. Mm-hmm. And so I think 17 years is, of age is sort of a good time for that. Mm-hmm. I also wanted a very simple, plain prose style. You know, George Orwell talks about the ideal English prose style. is like a window. And you look through the window pane to the world outside, and it's represented to you clearly and truthfully. In, in contrast to well, I, I think you're teaching Nebuchadnezzar. Mm-hmm. It's the opposite because <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is all about the uh, it's all about the window pane and the curlicues and the frost marks and the beauty of of the language that actually may obscure the reality behind. Mm-hmm. So it's two different views of art. One is that it presents a world unvarnished and direct, and the other is that it is it's the, can- the canvas is itself. This is the beauty. There's nothing beyond it. It's actually the beauty in itself. And I think those two aesthetic positions are each very interesting. Mm-hmm. What do you think?
2: Well, we t- teach Mark Danner and I were teaching this course, in V.S. Neipol, and Nabokov, and it's exactly on that issue that Naipaul is trying to represent these colonial societies, or first of all, his own internet, accurately find a language for it. And Nabokov, Nabokov's form of accuracy is actually being insanely specific so that you're seeing things...
1: In a very thi- microscopic way. Right. Yeah. I
2: mean, you see, but in it's Tinin, which we just read, there's a two-page description of how he takes a coat off
1: Oh, and then there's the type, the... uh, Right, uh, pencil
2: sharpener. Pencil sharpener. (laughs) Yeah, long, which is not unlike, the pencil sharpener is not unlike what you do in this book with the (laughs) Arcana of 1959, right? But
1: do you think Naipaul is actually presenting the world objectively? No. He's just doing it, he's doing it seemingly.
2: But he has a desire to see through. He despises ideologies, except his own, of course. And, and, uh, well,
1: I admire both writers very, very much. And I think Neville Cobb is so complex, and it almost helps to understand where he comes from. This The sense of the aristocracy, where didn't they have 50 servants for a family? Like, you know serfs or freed serfs and he's completely assimilated that sense of the superiority of of himself and his wife and it sort of goes unexamined in Neville he never steps outside himself but his homophobia for instance his derision of people different from himself his focusing on physical features uh, that are not beautiful to him we find many of us find that very offensive you know that he, he holds up for almost idolizing and fetishizing a certain kind of beauty, uh-huh. which is his own, and then he der- he derides and he mocks almost everything else in the world. To me, that that would be an interesting stumbling block to approaching Nabokov in a university course.
2: Mm-hmm. Yes.
1: Does anybody bring that? Does anybody bring that up? <laughs> Does bring
2: that up? Uh, <laughs> yes. We, we've been talking about not
1: to mention Lolita. We've been
2: talking about just that, and it actually reminded me of our friend, dearly departed Cheslow Milosh, has a quite wonderful poem, in his late prose poems about being in a barber chair, and he's looking with amusement at how homely, the uh, two other men who are waiting to be, and he suddenly realizes that he must count himself among the handsome, and um, then looks at his aging face in yeah, the mirror. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it is that entitled sense of your own beauty that your then own, leads you yes. to describe grotesquely everyone else's. Uh,
1: it's so anti.
2: Features. De- it
1: is so anti-democratic and anti-feminist, and you know, it, it's just. It's it, interesting, though. I mean, he's a he's a very great writer.
2: And deeply flattering to the reader who identifies. Yeah,
1: with he this. he sort of it's like he nudges you. We was just saying the very first paragraph of Panine. He describes Panin in a way that's mocking and, and kind of ludicrous. You know, he's got short legs or his, his head is wrong. So he's sort of saying, You and I are laughing at that person. And it's the uh, kind of aesthetics of cruelty. But his idea of beauty, I think, is very limited because a face can be beautiful that is a very ravaged and strange and even distorted face like Francis Bacon's portraits are actually very beautiful. So Nebuchadnezzar has this very limited sensibility, I think. And so I happen to be watching this amazing series, this Israeli series called Foda, F-A-U-D-A. Has anyone seen that? Nobody's seen that? Am I the only one in the room? Yeah, yeah. Girl, you're seeing it. What do you think of that? Uh, it's riveting. It's absolutely riveting. But the faces, awesome. aren't the faces fantastic? Uh, yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: yeah,
1: yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Who is, so magnetic, it can't leave you
1: He's impassive, but I'm thinking of all the other faces. We're talking about Israeli undercover intelligence, <laughs> men and one woman. Yeah, but, but my point, actually, is that the faces are so astonishing to watch. The actors, I mean, if you didn't even have any dialogue, you'd just put it on mute, you start looking at these amazing faces. Now, I don't think Carr would see these faces as beautiful and, and profound. He would see them as kind of ugly, maybe. But wow, I, I really recommend that. I'm not sure if it's a representation of Israel as it is, but uh, it's quite a remarkable series. Oh, they're all beautiful, and the the Arabic people. Well, the most interesting thing about it for me, not that I even know much about the the culture, but you can't tell the difference, and there are Israelis who have been brought up to be like Arabs. They speak Arabic perfectly. They look like Arabs. They they observe some of the rituals, but they are Israeli intelligent undercover Police officers and they are they're completely amoral, as my husband says, they're Israeli thugs. But they're sort of irresistibly interesting. And my my original point was just aesthetics. That I think Nebelkov has a very a very uh, has a very limited sense of the aesthetics of what be- beauty is.
2: So the other two motives for writing novels in, of the five were conveying a moral vision and making an aesthetic object, and it's in that that you talk about reimagining beauty. Yes, making,
1: creating an aesthetic object for its own sake, Mm -hmm. not to move anybody, not to even sell books, Mm -hmm. not to change anyone's mind. But as uh, Virginia Woolf said, the the sentence in itself, beautiful. Now, that's a nice line. The sentence in itself, beautiful. Mm -hmm.
2: Maybe we should invite the audience to join the conversation at this point. Would
1: you... Martin, um, I want. You said earlier about the protagonist that um, perhaps there was a dimension of uh, masochism. Masochism, and um, if you think of the year 1959, before the second wave of feminism, and not much memory of the first wave, really, um, or, or at least whatever had been accomplished had been accomplished. Um, couldn't you say that the protagonist um, had a deep identification uh, with the uh, professor uh, because she admired him and wanted to be like him in many ways, and so it was a big part of her to identify him with him was to make, enlarge her view of herself. Oh, definitely. I think that, um, I I agree, that's absolutely true. The um, identification, the admiration, the wish to have a mentor who's intellectual, who's fair-minded, who's a creative, and so forth. That's really, that was really the portrait. I think I was just being a little fun, funny, talking about masochism. But the motive of the writer is often masochistic, because writing is very hard. <laughs> and when you set out on a project, as maybe many people in the room know, you set out on a project where you have a visionary idea, and you're all excited, but then you sort of go into the, the trenches, and you're trying to execute it, and that sense of suffering in the short run so that in the long run you have a product, that, that you could call it a little bit masochistic. When people train for sports, for competitive sports, like boxes, for instance, they have to have an ability to absorb a lot of punishment and a lot of delayed gratification with the hope that at the end it's worth it. So I think that is a very loose uh, definition of masochism. A more narrow lo- definition is the one that is, is sort of contrast with sadism and masochism, that the masochistic personality is drawn to the sadistic authority, And I think it, it might be built into the patriarchal culture and has to be examined almost... Fre- it has to be freshly examined almost every day of our lives. To what extent are we uh, aiding and abetting this uh, sort of sadistic authority?
2: There's another part of this that isn't exactly masochism, which has to do, and it's it's a subject complicated and intimate to universities and to educate. is that one part of education seems to be getting crushes on people whose who's particular kind of energy you want. Um, the way you were saying, does she identify with his, it's one of the ways we learn, and it makes very complicated the whole business of relation between teachers and students and and what's appropriate behavior in relation to that kind of learning it's not masochistic to want to be or follow around or get the attention of somebody that you're who you find thrilling and want to intellectually admire which is the case of this young woman doubled by what looks like the patriarchy of 1959 society and her particular form of exile and loneliness.
1: And he also is more of a younger person, so he, she and he would be united against the, you know, the leaders. But it's very Socratic. It's a Socratic idea that the boys are learning from Socrates, you know, and, the, the young and boys. for
2: them to talk to each other, you must have had fun inventing this. They, they had to find, it's 1959, the uh, bomb shelter... <laughs> on the campus, yeah. where they might be free from surveillance.
1: I wonder if there's a bomb shelter here. <laughs> I was once in a. I was once in a bomb shelter. I was taken through a bomb shelter. Most, many of them are secret. You don't know they exist. There, um, any any area where there are government officials and people with a lot of money, there are actually bomb shelters, but the ordinary people don't know about them. So I was actually taken through a bomb shelter. I never got over that. I put a I put bomb shelter in a lot of my novels and stories. here we're back in the bomb shelter again. <laughs> but the funny thing is, the one I was taken to was in, in, uh, in Helsinki, and it was quite near the capital building, so it was for the, the leaders of the country. And I was taken through this vast underground, this subterranean, like a mausoleum, and it was like a place of, of the dead, and there were mannequins with gas masks and, and their uh, protective uh, clothing on. And you thought, if you had to go there, you know, you might as well just die. You might stay on on the surface of. And there were closets with uh, canned goods, you know, expiration date like 40 years ago, and that sort of thing. But all around the country, I'm sure there's one right by the White House. I mean, there's probably a secret passageway that the the first family will be taken, you know, the rest of the country can be incinerated, but these sort of horrible people (laughs) are going to be saved. When
2: when, uh, Nanjing was relentlessly bombed by the Japanese during World War II, when they reconstructed the city, the first thing they did in the middle of the city is make a massive bomb shelter, um, which they've turned into a huge bookstore...
1: Oh, that's wonderful! Called Library
2: Avant-Garde, and as you walk in, there are silk banners of writers. And my one experience of walking in was seeing silk banners of. Joyce Carol Oates, really? Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Susan Sontag, really? and Milan Kundera oh, you're as we walk down into the bomb shelter. Wow, you will be sound- happy to know.
1: No, that's that sounds like a real hallucination, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what Bob was doing. No, no. As, no, that sounds...
2: as Ira Wolfman points out, you're never going to know if this is a hallucination. You're never going
1: to know. Yeah, that's a little chip in the brain. But yes. other
2: questions? We have time.
0: Hi, uh, I'm Mark Danner, and um, I want to ride to the rescue at least a little bit to uh, the 40 years dead Vlad- Vladimir Nabokov, who um, uh, we just talked about in our class, as Bob knows, uh, uh, Panin um, yesterday. And it, it's so interesting the points you were making about cruelty, because he, at the time he started the book, when he hadn't quite finished. Uh, Lolita um, he started it to make money because he was afraid he wasn't going to sell Lolita and he had just given lectures on Don Quixote at Harvard uh, and uh, and he was upset, he was outraged at Don Quixote you know if, if you've read these lectures they've been published um, at the cruelty of Don Quixote and the fact that uh, throughout the book, the reader is encouraged to laugh at the yeah. brutality that's yeah. visited on him and visited on Sancho. So cruelty was very much in his mind, and a lot of people have speculated that Panine is, you know, pain, essentially. That, that the word pain, is meant to evoke yeah. pain. And... Uh, if you look at the... He he does describe him in the first page. Just
1: the first paragraph.
0: Yeah, yeah as sort of with an ideally bald and in this ridiculous way with very small legs. He's not mm. unlike the cockroach, actually, of Gregor Samsa. Um, but... Uh, by the end of the novel, he's rather uh, redeemed. And the, the whole idea, you know, the, there's a chapter in the middle in which he goes to a country house, which is all Russians, of course, who are having this country house in New England, and he suddenly becomes this suave, uh, absolutely non-strange uh, uh-huh. uh, character. So a true. lot of it's kind of a reflection, I think, on cruelty and how we judge people uh, from the outside. I, I, on the other hand, um, Nabokov himself was very handsome and was thought of as very handsome when he was young. And I was thinking when you were talking about the non-democratic, the, the idea of uh, th- his idea of beauty as non-democratic and, or anti-democratic. And I was remembering my six-year-old when she was about the age of little Albert. Uh, it was very obvious that she was fascinated by beauty. If there, she had one babysitter in particular who had long blonde hair, big uh-huh. blue eyes, classically Scandinavianly beautiful, if you can say it that way and Gracie was completely fascinated and taken with her and stared at her. And uh, I was struck at the time in thinking that, is there a kind of model of beauty that is in some way uh, inherent? And I thought, as you said that, that his idea of beauty is, is anti-democratic. I just wrote in my notebook, beauty is anti-democratic.
1: Well, be- and- beauty is uh, it's, it's sort of hardwired. We, we uh, have, when we're, when we're just born, we have neurons that are, attach themselves to faces. Mm-hmm. And probably the face, you know, this also the long blonde hair would, would be fascinating. But when we get beyond that, you know, we get to be in a sort of, Expand your sense of beauty so that it can be a, a face that's conventionally ugly couldn't be very interesting
0: oh no, no question yeah.
1: but I think Panin is unique in, in nebokov's work. I think it's the, it's the most tender of his novels basically
0: I agree it's the one most suffused with uh, with sympathy there's no sympathy question and
1: the ending is, is so wonderful My feeling about Nebokov is that he actually had a very, a very he was actually deeply wounded. A very wounded person, it's like his heart is exposed, and so you don't want your heart exposed. So you put on this carapace of armor, of irony, of superiority, of language, of virtuosity in language, and you put this armor on so that your, your sensitive heart is hidden. But you see in some of the footnotes in Pale Fire, it really comes out. You know, he's, He feels deeply, but he feels very deeply, but he doesn't want you to feel sorry for him. You know, I don't want your pity. I really am very sensitive, but I don't want your pity. Do that you think the may, wound
0: is of, egg, of exile? Is that yeah, the wound? Yes,
1: so his father's execution. Mm. Yeah. I think losing his language.
2: I think we He's have deeply wounded.
1: One
2: more question.
0: You started off talking about hell. Uh, hell. Of hell and about this nature of imprisonment, Um, and it paralleled uh, your discussion about the brain and not being able to think for yourself, and you mentioned also about our current digital age where a lot of things are kind of pushed on us, Uh, and you've also written about boxing, which, uh, of course, uh, a lot of boxers go through a lot of uh, brain trauma. I'm just wondering about this nature of how to break away and become creative and individual, and what do you do to kind of inject artistic uh energy into your life
1: Well, you could take the the question in a very broad philosophical sense are are we are we determined by our genetic inheritance and our environment, or are we do we have some measure of free will so I think The more education, the more reading you do, the more you travel, you meet people. We we come from a position of being determined and easily manipulated because we're easily brainwashed, we're easily addicted. The species is easily addicted to all sorts of things. And so to break free of that hypnosis, so to speak, you become educated. So the idea of a civilization of education you expand yourself through reading, through books, through professors, through taking courses, traveling, learning other languages. And as you rise up in your consciousness, you you ever more freedom of will, every more ever more freedom of choice. So that your your choices become much more uh, expansive. But if you stay in your own little tribe and you're way down and everything's narrow and the library in your little town is just a tiny library, then you're not going to have the same choices. So, my feeling is that it's basically a philosophical question of what one does with one's own um, inheritance. You know, we're all determined to a degree genetically, and then our environment shapes us, but we can change our environment and we can change. We can change our identities by acts of will.
2: So, I'm not going to say how the novel ends, but I wonder if when you began it, you knew this young woman and her lover, Matt Mired, are trapped in this world. Did you know how you were going to end the book when you started it?
1: Yes, I always know how the novels will end before I start <laughs> Otherwise, I couldn't find my way there. So she just says she's, she's, made her, uh, she's made her peace with the limitations of her world. She's forgotten her parents. I, I wanted the novel to show, as you read the novel, the reader remembers things that have happened to her that she's forgotten. They've taken that away from her. However, she's made a marriage. She's married a good person. He's, uh, he's somewhat deluded, and he's, he's provincial and limited, but he's a good person. And so she's become somebody's wife. And she's inherited this family, this uh, domestic life, a farm. And she says, there's always room for one more at our farm. Anytime you're in the neighborhood of Heron Creek Farm or anywhere in the vicinity of Ranscosia Falls, Wisconsin, you two are welcome to drop by here with all the others. Please come. I would so like to meet you. Stay with us as long as you like.
2: Joyce Carol Oates. We
1: hope you enjoyed this Berkeley Book Chat, and we encourage you to join us in person or via podcast for future programs in the series.
0: You've been listening to Berkeley Talks, a Berkeley news podcast from the Office of Communications and Public Affairs that features lectures and conversations at UC Berkeley. You can find more talks with transcripts at news.berkeley.edu slash podcasts.